Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Afney, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. We're going to spend the first two blocks of this program with one of the most important contributors we have. Her name is Carolyn Glick. She is a senior fellow of our Center for Security Policy, but she also has a couple of other things she does, including the Carolyn Glick Show, and not least, she is a, a diplomatic correspondent for Channel 14 in Israel and a columnist for the Jewish News Syndicate. And we're particularly anxious to catch up with her because she has not only written a magnificent piece at JNS.org, which I strongly commend to all of you, but she's also been talking about its content with some of our senior legislators and other um, experts in Washington the past few days. And it's a great, great privilege to have her with us. Carolyn, thank you. I know you've had a very long day and we won't keep you long, but it's really important to have this conversation, I think, at this particular moment. So bless you for doing it. Oh, I'm Thank glad you. to be on your program again. So, Frank. Carolyn, um, the thrust of this piece, if I could summarize it briefly, is an indictment, an indictment of the Biden administration and what it is doing ostensibly in the name of the American people. But I think very much contrast to their sentiments about Israel, but also their obvious interests uh, national security, not least. You have 11 different items in your sort of bill of particulars in this indictment. Um, I'd like to just go through some of the most important ones in the time we have with you, starting with the idea that the Biden administration, well, I think it has had from the get-go, really the first two incarnations of the Obama-Biden administration. Talk a little bit about the attitude the Biden team has had um, since it came to office and how that's now manifesting in the various ways you've described. Well, you know, what we've seen with the Biden administration really from the outset of its tenure in office in January 2021 is that um, they had two interrelated um, goals for their Middle East uh, policy. The first one is to appease Iran trying to bring it back into the uh, 2015 uh, nuclear deal that the Obama administration concluded and that uh, President uh, Trump uh, exited from uh, during his presidency. And so one of them was to renew that nuclear deal that gives Iran a glide path to nuclear weapons. And they were never able to secure Iran's uh, uh, agreement to go back to the uh, deal, but in the meantime, the Americans implemented it. They suspended sanctions against Iran, and they empowered Iran uh, regionally uh, in any way that they possibly could. And the second goal of the administration's Middle East policy was to empower the Palestinians um, and to uh, work assiduously to undermine Israel's legitimacy and to transfer Israel's legitimacy to the Palestinians. So it's a very anti-Zionist administration and it's a very pro-Iranian administration. And uh, this has been the, the um, kind of consistent tone of the Biden administration and also reflected in their policies towards Israel and the Palestinians really from their first days in office. And from the Palestinian perspective, the main thing that they were trying to do is undermine the peace agreements that President Trump mediated between Israel and four Arab states, uh, first and foremost, the United Arab Emirates and Morocco and Bahrain, and then also Sudan, uh, and tried to restore Palestinian veto rights over, uh, over Arab-Israeli peace and tried to make those agreements subordinate to Palestinian demands against Israel. In other words, yeah. to try to break and, and most especially between is, Israel and the Arab states. Yeah, to preclude the next deal from being struck between the Israelis and the Saudis. Uh, and exactly. and Carolyn, I, I think you've characterized this the same way I have, that this is a, well, I think of it as the Biden doctrine, characterized by treating your friends, in this case Israel, but arguably those other nations that have partnered with it, worse than you treat your enemies. And that's a formula for having a lot fewer friends and a lot more 
emboldened enemies. Do you think that has had anything to do, this this policy approach, with the October 7th massacre and what has flowed from it? Well, obviously, the Biden administration's open hostility towards Israel from the get-go uh, does embolden Israel's enemies. It emboldens Iran. It showed Iran, you know, that the Biden administration essentially wants to realign the United States away from its traditional allies in the Middle East, first and foremost, Israel, uh, and secondly, uh, Saudi Arabia, and towards America's enemies, first and foremost, Iran, and all of its uh, terrorist proxies, Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas, the Palestinian Authority in uh, in Israel, um, and and the Houthis in Yemen and, and and others as well. So that's been their policy. And so not only the standing with them against Israel, but also the standing with the standing against Israel, those things all embolden uh, the Iranians and their access of evil to uh, wage war, to expand and, uh, and escalate their operations against Israel. Absolutely. So, yes. Yeah. So uh, on October 8th, I guess, or maybe late on the 7th, the United States government under Joe Biden professed an undying commitment to the state of Israel, yes. um, that it would stand with them till the you know end and be at their side and supporting them and so on. Um, Let's turn to how they've actually comported themselves, um, really from basically, as you would say, the get-go of that post-October 7th period, but ever more aggressively in recent days, starting maybe with this idea that um, uh, Tony Blinken has been insisting upon, uh, Biden has as well, and others, that Israel must enter a ceasefire, a long duration, if not actually permanent ceasefire with Hamas and um, begin exchanging, you know, what's left of the hostages for thousands of uh, Palestinian jihadis. Right. So uh, Tony Blinken was interesting. The Israeli media reported that upon his uh, uh, exit from Israel's return to the United States from Israel to date, uh, Secretary of State Blinken uh, angrily said that he cares more about the Israeli hostages than Prime Minister Netanyahu does, and that Prime Minister Netanyahu is playing politics uh, with the hostages. When, when obviously this is pure projection. Uh, President, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Secretary of State Blinken uh, was trying to force Israel's hand by extorting us through the Hamas's uh, holding of 136 Israeli hostages uh, in Gaza by saying that in exchange for some of these hostages, certainly not all of them, uh, Israel would agree to free uh, hundreds, if not thousands of Hamas terrorists from its prison, including uh, Hamas's demanding the murderers and the rapists um, who, who performed the atrocities, who committed the atrocities of October 7th that are currently in Israeli uh, prison. And um, so he was saying uh, the, the United States is proposing a swap of hostages for terrorists of 100 to 250 terrorists per hostage. And Hamas was demanding that they release only one hostage per day. And throughout the duration of the ceasefire, I mean, through of the swap of hostages of one hostage for 100 or 250 uh, terrorists per day, that Israel would not... Uh, maintain its military operations in Gaza in any form, including over uh, surveillance flights of drones and air, other aircraft, uh, so that they would be able to operate freely and rebuild their military infrastructures and their command and control uh, apparatuses within Gaza. And the United States uh, has been promising the Egyptians and the Qataris and through them to Hamas that at the end of this ceasefire, when only some of the Israeli hostages would be freed, in exchange for hundreds, if not thousands of terrorists, that the United States would guarantee that Israel actually would just end the war. So Hamas would survive and Israel would 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 fail and lose the war. Carolyn, we'll be right back with more with the great Carolyn Clay. Stay tuned. This is Frank Hafting with the Secure Freedom Minute. A special prosecutor has found that Joe Biden violated the law by willfully retaining, improperly handling, and even disclosing classified information. But not to worry. 
he is mentally too diminished to be held accountable for doing so. Former U.S. Attorney Robert Hur contends that Biden would beat the rap with a federal jury because his cognitive abilities are so degraded that some jurors may have reasonable doubt, believing he just forgot about classified information left in his antique Corvette and an office he shared with Chinese intelligence officers. If so, Joe clearly is too impaired to be President of the United States. As it happens, intrepid undercover investigator James O'Keefe documented recently that Biden's dementia is an open secret inside his White House. Now that it's officially confirmed, the risk he poses to the nation can no longer be tolerated. This is Frank Gaffney. Welcome back. Carolyn Glick is in the house. Um, alas, we have little time to cover a lot of topics, so we're going to be very, very brief on a number of other items that you need to know about because they're being done in your name. Carolyn, you just described uh, what seems to be a very bad deal indeed that Tony Blinken was trying to coerce Benjamin Netanyahu to accept a long-range, long-term ceasefire, uh, the, the, the repopulating of Palestinian terrorist ranks, as well as rebuilding and reconstituting Hamas's capabilities. Um, talk a little bit about the uh, humanitarian aid that is being demanded as well for the people of Palestinian Gaza. So there are two aspects to that. One is that the United States is demanding that Israel uh, supply uh, humanitarian aid to the civilians in Gaza, even though the implications of doing so is that they're keeping them under the control of Hamas and every other war zone that you've ever heard of in the world. When people are in harm's way, they're allowed to leave and they uh, uh, the United States, the State Department, as a matter of course, tries to convince uh, third third countries to accept refugees from places like the Ukraine or Syria or Libya or Iraq. Uh, but the position of the Biden administration is that the Palestinians of Gaza must not be allowed, must not be permitted to actually seek refuge in third countries. They have to stay there uh, at the mercy of Hamas. So that's one aspect of to it. To serve then, as, then they, let's face it, human shields for Hamas. Human right? shields and also as subjects because they support Hamas, most of them. And uh, so to actually help in the war effort and also be beholden to Hamas because that's the, the other side of the humanitarian aid is that Hamas controls it because they control the the... They control Hamas. They control Gaza. So when you're bringing, what is the in, estimate of how much of the aid is getting to the people of Gaza as opposed to Hamas? Right. Um, so between sixty and seventy percent of the humanitarian aid that Israel has been coerced into supplying to Gaza by the U.S. administration is going directly to Hamas. So only between forty and fifty percent. I mean, 40 and 30 percent of the uh, humanitarian aid is assessed to actually be getting to the people that the uh, administration says that they care about. The rest of it is going to resupply Hamas and though, thus prolong the war and the hostage crisis because they have no reason to end their attack on Israel when they're well supplied, their larders are full, they have fuel to power their generators in the subterranean tunnels where they have their military complex and the and hostages. Held with their people, right? They, they They've never care cared less. about that. Right. You know? um, Carolyn, like a mantra we've been hearing from the president and Blinken and Jake yeah. Sullivan and others in the administration that um, the obvious outcome of all of this has to be the creation of a Palestinian state. Um, what's wrong with that idea? So what's wrong with that idea is that a Palestinian state will be a state that is a jihadist state that is organized the sole around the sole principle of annihilating Israel, not building anything for the Palestinians. Look, the Palestinians have had a state in Gaza since 2005 when Israel left, and look what they made of it. They right. turned a it into a two-state solution, package. you might say. Yeah. Right. This, and, this, and, is, this is what they want. This is what a Palestinian Carol, state is. It's a Hamas state. And that would be true irrespective of whether Hamas is still in business or whether it's the Palestinian Authority or maybe Barghouti or somebody, Barghouti, somebody like that coming out of the Israeli prisons, for example. Barghouti is the mass murderer who everybody's saying is an alternative to the current Palestinian Authority leader, Mahmoud Abbas. Barghouti is uh, serving 
six life sentences for murdering Israelis. And that's only the ones that they were able to pin down on him. But he was the architect for the mass murder of Israelis in what's known as the second intifada or the Palestinian terror war from between 2000 and 2004. And that just bears, that just points out exactly what the problem is, is that there is no Palestinian leader. There is no Palestinian faction. There is no Palestinian party. There is no Palestinian constituency for anything other than genocide. That's what unites them all together, whether it's Hamas or the Palestinian Authority, Fatah, Islamic Jihad, it doesn't matter. All sectors of Palestinian society agree on the underlying foundation of their group identity, which is that they are organized around the sole principle of killing the Jews. That's what we saw on October 7th, and that's what we see every time that they're given the opportunity to kill Jews. That's what they do. That's what they teach their children right. to, to children You're celebrated. To do. That's you what know, they celebrate. Driving Those them, them from the river to the sea, as we're told by uh, exactly. supporters of Hamas here. Um, when you look at all of this, Carolyn, uh, I guess the question that it begs, and I want to put it to you maybe most pointedly in connection with one other aspect of this, namely the determination of the Biden administration to remove Benjamin Netanyahu from power, the elected leader of the people of Israel and the man who is fighting this war, I have to say, under very difficult circumstances, rather formidably, uh, he is, we're told, a man who has uh, got to go because he doesn't buy this Palestinian state business. He's repeating this ceasefire idea. He's restricting humanitarian assistance, all of the other excuses. Is it the case in your estimation that the Biden administration is now translating the hostility that you've suggested they've had towards Israel from the beginning of their time in office into an actual determination to do to Israel, well, something that I think is uh, Afghanistan 2.0. Um, well, you know, they're trying to personalize it. They think that if they say often enough that the only problem for them is Benjamin Netanyahu and that the Israeli people are 100% behind the idea of rewarding the single largest massacre of Jewish people since the Holocaust, um, that it'll be true. You know, it's like praying to Tinkerbell or something. And so you have this mantra that it's all Netanyahu's fault. Blame, blame Netanyahu. He's just operating out of political calculations rather than because this is what has to be done in order for Israel to survive, then then everybody will agree and everybody will understand how right the Biden administration is to, to side with Hamas against Israel in this war for Israel's existence. So that's not going to happen. And their determination, luckily, is outmatched by the determination of the Israeli people to see this through to the end. Netanyahu very much is uh, representing the will of the Israeli people who are unified in a way that I've, you know, I've been living in Israel for 35 years and I've been through ups and downs. Israel has been through ups and downs in these three and a half decades since I moved to Israel. And I can tell you that I've never seen, and this is after 10 months of unprecedented rancor and polarization in the ranks of Israeli society around a lot of different things. And here you see a unanimity of purpose uh, from right to left, old and young, religious and secular, that Israel has to win this war and ending this war with victory means ending this war with the eradication of Hamas, full stop. So, you know, the, the American uh, administration, the Biden administration can say whatever it wants, but Netanyahu represents the will of the Israeli people and they're supposed to appreciate democracy, but, and he is in fact, they claim they're all about saving it, actually. Yes. Yeah. And and that's what is happening here is that by standing with the people and promising us the victory that we demand and also delivering. I mean, we can't forget that what's happening on the ground in Gaza is is really a miracle. I mean, the amount of progress that we've made in fighting in underground tunnels, it's something that no military has ever dealt with before in human history. And we're making profound progress in three months We've done more than the Americans did in a year in Mosul and under better conditions. That's right. And, and with more uh, restraint in terms of uh, adverse impact on, you know, the casualties of civilians. Okay. Um, let me just say, Carolyn, and very quickly, all of the backdrop to this is sort of focused now in restraint 
on the weapons resupply for Israel, is it not? And I've got 30 seconds for you to respond by just telling us why that's a very bad thing. It's a very bad thing because, you know, look, the, the Obama administration compelled Israel to sign this memorandum of understanding on military assistance to Israel that essentially forced Israel to close down our domestic production lines for basic military equipment like tank shells, artillery shells, etc., and become dependent on the United States. And they guaranteed that they would supply us with everything we need. And now what we're seeing is more and more reports of America slow walking the transfer of weapons to Israel. And we're using, we're conserving, we're, a lot of our soldiers are getting killed because we have to concern our, we have to conserve our Air Force uh, ordinance and we're forced to we send to our soldiers that, into, into harm's way. Thank you for this very important report and I hope encouragement to all of our friends of Israel here to support her in her hour of need. God bless you, my dear. Come back with us soon. Thank you very much. We'll be right back with more right after this. Night after night, in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows, and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat, this new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. We're back, and I'm delighted to say we're joined by one of the most interesting men I have met in a very long time. His name is Brian Costello. No stranger to this program, but we haven't talked with him in a while, and it's high time that we caught up because his expertise as a very successful um, tech startup, financial, foreign capital specializing uh, executive is precisely what we need to draw upon, particularly given his insights into what has been going on with respect to China and its old friends here in our capital markets, uh, venture capital firms and the like, uh, notably Sequoia Capital. Um, all of this uh, background and his courage in bringing to light what we all need to know about it has caused him to uh, be thought of by some as the Aaron Brockovich of China corruption in Washington, D.C. And we'll explore a little bit why that is so. It's great to have you back, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank it's great to be back, Frank. And, and thanks for continuing coverage on this important topic. Thank you. Well, it's been a, a little uh, inadequate of late, but we're glad to catch up, especially because we have a news peg. And that is that the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, chaired by Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, has just released a report that um, I had hoped was going to be a rather full-throated uh, takedown of Sequoia Capital, which uh, initially it was not allowed to investigate. And then uh, Kevin McCarthy left office and uh, they got the go-code. But uh, talk to us about um, the nature of the report as you see it with uh, your background and expertise. Yeah, let's, let's, let's just give a quick overview first. So uh, this, the China Select Committee was an independent committee that was formed under Kevin McCarthy, when he was speaker, to kind of look in a bipartisan way at what they could do policy-wise to uh, bring information to the public and look at policy-wise to see what they could do to improve on how we were handling the China threat. Mike Gallagher 
was put in charge of it and from the get-go was talking about a bipartisan effort. And so last summer, they announced an investigation into four venture capital firms, um, Walden Ventures, Qualcomm Ventures, GCV, and I forget who the other one. Sequoia wasn't even on the initial list. Uh, and then there was a second investigation that was launched seven days after McCarthy left, specifically into the breakup of Sequoia Capital and funding weapons. And what you have here and what I see here is, is rather performative more than substance. You have a combined report that's released after, the day after Gallagher uh, you know, decided to vote against the impeachment of Mayorkas, which he didn't oppose back in November. And the report, in my mind, Frank, was flawed from the beginning. They didn't look at the right firms. I mean, I've been looking at this for seven or eight years, and I'd never even heard of Walden Capital, which the report concludes is one of the you know big villains of this whole thing. The three firms that should have been looked at from the get-go were Sequoia Capital, Hillhouse Ventures, which is actually associated with the entire Yale club run in Washington. You know, many of the people at the Department of Justice, Jake Sullivan's a Yale guy, like uh, John Kerry, according to his financial disclosures, is actually invested in Hillhouse's funds. The climates are, the former climates are. And the third firm that should have been looked at is IDG Capital that just came out. And this is run by Mitch McConnell's brother-in-law. And it just came out that it was on the DOD funding military list. And, but yet wow. it wasn't included in the investigation. When you say DOD funding military list, you mean the funding of Chinese military? Yes, it was on a list that just came out. And they just came out and said they're protesting this. It was on a list that came out from DOD of blacklisted companies that are funding things associated with funding or doing things associated with the Chinese military. This is the, well, unfortunately, that should be a fairly is, long list, given what we've seen on Wall Street of late. But you're, it's it, the first venture here. firm they've been put it on. It's the first investment yeah. firm they put on it. And not Sequoia, interestingly enough. Yeah. So, uh, Brian, I, I, part of what's so important about, you know, your insights into all of this is you have earned that title, the Aaron Brockovich of uh, Chinese corruption in D.C., by, among other things, making book really on what Sequoia Capital specifically has been up to. Yeah. And the fact that uh, this report uh, didn't address uh, two of the others, and I gather rather unsatisfactorily, even Sequoia, is that evidence of this, uh, the kind of corruption that you've been focused on? Yeah. You know, it, the, the report actually ignored the corruption, right? So what the report, the a report really concluded and they released it a video, you know, a production with the report to be performative. Right. And it laid out three threats, Frank. It laid out there's a direct threat that we're funding. We have American investment firms with U.S. pension, retirement, family office dollars, you know, that are the investors in these venture firms funding these military weapons in China. So that's threat one. We're actually funding our adversaries, military weapons. The second threat, they said, is this gives the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping power over U.S. companies, right? Because it gives him leverage and, you know, uh, can hold them hostage. And the third threat they laid out was this also impacts our economic security in the future. And I agree with those threats, right? But what they missed is the individuals making money off this are writing huge checks into Washington to buy continued malfeasance. So the fourth threat is the most important which is the fundamental destruction of our democracy by a foreign adversary or a constitutional republic, right? By having corrupted democratic officials who are put in place by the donors, they're investing in weapons in China. Yeah. So the weapons report doesn't and, even cover that threat. Yeah, weapons and uh, human rights abuse mechanisms that the Chinese Communist Party utilizes to oppress its own people. As There's well. a lot, you know, one of the big, one of the big business areas there, I mean, it's specifically called out semiconductors and artificial intelligence because they're mm -hmm. very important in the military and, you know, uh, sectors, but it also pointed to a number of the surveillance technologies. Right. And, right. and, and by the way, Brian, as you know, and I think our audience has been exposed to, uh, those surveillance technologies are now being harnessed by people outside of China including, I believe, this whole World Health Organization idea of 
you know, giving everybody digital IDs and using those IDs to not just track, you know, medical developments, but uh, to control people. And so yeah. it's not just human rights abuses in China that's so worrying here. It's uh, it's what may be coming to a theater near you. So yes. let me just ask you, you you've got uh, experience in, among other things, uh, artificial intelligence related startups. Uh, to the extent that we are, uh, especially in the, the uh, an entity like Sequoia Capital, as you and I've discussed in the past, which kind of sits in the catbird seat in terms of knowing what technologies are out there and being able to cue the Chinese Communist Party as to the ones to, you know, try to buy up or otherwise uh, co-opt or rip off for that matter. Um, how serious is that particular piece of this to uh, the military threat we face, as well as uh, economic competitiveness going forward? It's, it's huge, uh, Frank. When you look at all the cutting, so the artificial technology space is enormous, right? It's, it's basically computers can now become experts in things and essentially get to a level where they outperform people, right? Uh, and so that has ramifications. Yeah, that has ramifications in, you know, uh, military intelligence, healthcare, biotech, finance, you know, every every single industry, right? That's, you know, equivalent of the, the computer or the internet or whatever, however you want to look at it. A lot of the research in this area is coming from universities. Sequoia, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, the head of the Center for Human Artificial Intelligence at Stanford, is a woman named Fei Fei Li, who is very close with Neil Shen from Sequoia, and her professorship is endowed by Sequoia. So a lot of the research in AI is coming out of the Stanfords and the Yales and the various schools in terms of the researchers that are then turns into technologies that are going to help us win this race. And one of the things done with Sequoia and Shen is they penetrated a number of our top universities in these areas. And, and, and these were the same universities that lobbied to end the DOJ China program under Trump, right. ironically. Brian, you know, you've made the point to me before that um, it's one thing to have penetrated universities and research centers and, and you know, co-opted people who run them. It's another actually to, as I think Neil Shen has been able to do, um, have these people bringing to him the fruits of their research and uh, opportunities to invest, obviously, but also to um, enable the Chinese to, as I say, scarf up this technology. Uh, just talk about this from your perspective in terms of the national security implications of it. Yeah, it's a lot, e you know, it's a lot easier if, if you have the support of the Chinese government, in some ways, it's a lot easier to build a company if you get somebody like Shen involved, right? It's like there's one drone company in China, right? Or one very successful drone company, the Chinese government that uses drones for surveillance and all sorts of other stuff on top, top of the military things. They're not giving out a lot of licenses there, Frank, for drone companies, right? So DGI was funded by Sequoia and Shen. And what they're smart enough to do is bring UN, U.S. investors in on the deal, right? One of the... One of the this isn't even, it's not even mentioned in the report. One of the investments they talked about on the surveillance and technology side, the Gallagher Committee, is Majivi, which is a facial recognition company. And so Majivi is the facial recognition they use to get into the Uber of China, which is called Didi, right? So you, you have to scan your face to get into one of the cars, right? And then that all gets dumped into a database and shipped up to the Chinese government, right? Right. That was, and, a, and Biden, that was a Biden family investment. Yeah, and into the social credit system as well. You got we it. have to it leave it Biden, at that for Biden, the moment. Biden was invested in Majivi, which is not even mentioned in the report. We have to leave it at that, and we're going to dig down further with you, Brian, uh, next week if we can on why is it that this report is so uh, deficient. But thank you for your time today, my friend. Come back to us again soon. We'll be thank right you, back Frank. with more right after this. This is Frank Hefting with the Secure Freedom Minute. 
A special prosecutor has found that Joe Biden violated the law by willfully retaining, improperly handling, and even disclosing classified information. But not to worry, he is mentally too diminished to be held accountable for doing so. Former U.S. Attorney Robert Hur contends that Biden would beat the rap with a federal jury because his cognitive abilities are so degraded that some jurors may have reasonable doubt, believing he just forgot about classified information left in his antique Corvette and an office he shared with Chinese intelligence officers. If so, Joe clearly is too impaired to be president of the United States. As it happens, intrepid undercover investigator James O'Keefe documented recently that Biden's dementia is an open secret inside his White House. Now that it's officially confirmed, the risk he poses to the nation can no longer be tolerated. This is Frank Gaffney. We're back, and we're joined by one of our great contributors to this program. His name is Dr. Stephen Bryan. He is a colleague and friend of many years. He has served in the United States Congress in senior uh, oversight roles, as well as as a deputy undersecretary of defense for policy back when men were men in the Reagan administration. He's also been a uh, captain of uh, the defense industrial sector in connection with uh, the work he did at Thin Mechanica USA. He is, in short, a very, very good guy to have around. And Steve, welcome back. It's good to have you, especially no, my wife since... That. I beg your pardon? Tell my wife that. That's uh, very... I, I want you to play the video for her. Anyway, Steve, let me ask you, uh, I believe you have actually got under your belt about half of uh, Tucker Carlson's interview with Vladimir right. Putin. That's uh, more than I have, to be honest. And I'm interested in your thoughts based on what you've seen so far. Well, he gives, uh, you know, the, the interview is quite interesting. Uh, I think uh, two hours, more than two hours. It's quite a long interview these days. And uh, uh seemed to me that people's attention span w- wouldn't hold out for much of it. Um, he gives the Russian uh, outlook, you know, as he's very clear about uh, how the Russians see it. Uh, and, you know, he complaints. I think the most interesting part, to me at least, was that he really, he doesn't quite say it the way I'm going to say it, but it, it's the same idea. He says, you know, we were interested in joining NATO. That's back in the Clinton in the 90s. And I told Bill Clinton I wanted to join NATO and Clinton thought it was a good idea, but he said he needed to consult with his people. And then he came back and said, no. Um, but the interest, I think what's behind that is that Russia was orienting itself to the West. It was trying to become part of the club, if you want. It wanted to be part of Europe for sure. And certainly it wanted good relations with the U.S. But at that time in the 90s, Russia was a mess. It, it was, it lacked, a, it lacked an army. It was, it was completely downtrodden. The economy was ruined. I mean, there's a lot of problems there. But even so, that was a major thrust of Putin, and it was Putin's idea. Uh, since then, we've gone entirely in the opposite direction. And, and, and maybe that's too bad. I think it is. And I think Putin made a very valid point. Let's talk about Putin more recently, um, namely the current state of uh, Ukraine, uh, approaching yeah. three years into this uh not quite. War that he launched. Yeah. Um, what is your sense of both his war aims at this point, and to the extent he addressed it in the part that you heard, um, the interest he might have in some sort of negotiated agreement there, which you and among others have been calling for? Well, he says he want he he wants a negotiation. <clears throat> 
He doesn't say what he wants to negotiate exactly about, but he says he wants a negotiation. I think the Russian aims have changed. The, the, and by the way, it's part of the Carlson conversation as well. He talks about the Minsk one and Minsk two agreements in 2014 and 2015, uh, and how the Ukrainians decided that they wouldn't they wouldn't uh, uh, follow them up. They they wouldn't implement them, largely because Washington was against it. Um, and remind us what those uh, Minsk, I think, yeah, Minsk is a very complicated agreement, but one of the provisions was to make the eastern Ukraine areas, uh, Luhansk uh, and Donetsk areas, uh, quasi independent, still part of Ukraine, but with a lot of independence and still controlled by Ukrainian law. Uh, and it was a half. These, these are the areas that the Russian the language is dominant, and where much of the fighting has been taking place. Yeah, aside from the southern part, which is Zafritsa and over to Kyrgyzstan, and then on toward Crimea, but the big fighting is in Luhansk and Donetsk, especially Donetsk, um, and and that was going on back then too. I mean, it's nothing nothing new, but the the, the point here is that 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 deal which was negotiated by the Europeans, Russia, uh, Ukraine, and by the two re uh, republics, put them in quotes, Luhansk and Donetsk, they're not republics anymore, now they're part of Russia. Uh, that was, that was a, the idea was to figure out a solution. And, and, and it wasn't a bad one. It still isn't a bad one, but it's, I think it's too late. I think probably Minsk is a dead letter. Putin didn't say that exactly, but I think his... His objectives have changed. I think he wants a change in Ukraine, a friendly government in Ukraine. I think he wants a neutral government. I think he wants no army there. You know, he certainly doesn't want NATO there. Those are kind of his his, his objectives now. Current war aims. Um, the man who has been doing much to stand up against all of that is a, a general by the name of Zuleshny. Uh, who has now been fired um, by the prime minister, uh, excuse me, the president of, uh, of Ukraine. Uh, what do you make of all of that? Uh, how does it fit into the state of play? Well, uh, practically speaking, Zelensky was getting too popular in the country for Zelensky. And Zelensky thought he had to get rid of him. Um, the other thing that... So Zelensky... it didn't have to do with his performance? Well, no, it had to do with one thing that's very crucial. Zeluzhny's idea was to pull back to secure areas and not fight the Russians in eastern uh, Ukraine because he's a loser, you're not going to win, and it's going to grind up our troops. So he thought, pull them back, make a defensive line, and then start talking to the Russians. Um, that was not what Zelensky wants. 100% different than what Zelensky wants. So they were on completely different. And uh, Zelensky's war aims remain the liberation of the entirety of yeah. Ukraine? He says so. Yeah. You know, including, including Crimea? Everything. Mm -hmm. He wants the Russians, he wants two things. He wants the Russians entirely out of Ukraine. And the other thing he wants is to try as many Russians as he can for war crimes. So, you know, that's not a good negotiating position. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a maximalist one, for sure, especially yeah, but, if you add on reparations for the destruction that's been meted out. And, that too, and yeah. Yeah. But, you know, he's losing the war, so how can he make those arguments? In fact, one further, Frank, he now says parts of Russia belong to Ukraine. Well, this is uh, obviously a bridge too far for the Russians, and uh, it remains sure. to be seen whether it's a basis for beginning even a conversation about peace in Ukraine. Steve, we have to take a short break. Um, I, there's much more to talk about on that subject, but I'm going to switch gears with you and talk about Iran, where we stand in that battle space. We'll be right back with Steve Bryan. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Steve Bryan is with us. Uh, Dr. Bryan is one of our go-to guys on a whole host of national security matters uh, based in part on his long experience with national security policymaking at the highest levels. And Steve, I, I did want to get your thoughts on um, another topic. Um, 
not unrelated to Ukraine, I think, in the larger scheme of things, as Iran is very actively involved in helping the Ukrainians, excuse me, the Russians in their war against Ukraine. Um, but I, I wanted to talk about the Iranians' war against us, which seems to be ongoing and in some ways intensifying, albeit through various uh, cutouts and proxies, notably militia in Iraq. Well, it's what not only is going on here. I mean, there's a lot of Iranian National Guard, uh, Revolutionary IRGC. Guard yep. people in Syria and, and in Iraq, too. Yes, that's true. So, not just so, them. Some of those have attacked uh, on over a hundred occasions. I've lost count now. Uh, over American military facilities and bases, uh, including one that killed uh, three Americans and badly wounded uh, a whole bunch of others yeah, in Jordan. Um, the response from the Biden administration has been um, rather underwhelming, uh, to say the least. Uh, what are your thoughts about it? And more generally, where are we with respect to Iran? Well, Biden has two problems. I mean, one problem is that most of this was coming out of Iraq. Uh, I think they know that pretty well. And the Iraqi government is supporting the, the terrorists, not only supporting them, you know, politically, but they're paying for them. Billions well, of dollars. And it's a vassal state, really, of Iran at this point, isn't now, it? Now, yes. And then the other problem is Iran, and, and Biden's totally compromised on Iran. Uh, and, and I can't explain that. I mean, nobody can, really. I mean, why? He's soft on Iran because he's letting him get away with it. But don't you think one of the explanations is if, as I believe, uh, Biden's administration is really Obama Biden 3.0? We've all known how soft Barack Obama was on Iran. Two the mem shows us the French it's, style, all the yeah, same thing. Exactly. So, uh, to the extent that it's softness that's explaining why we've seen um, such, a, shall we say, muted response. Uh, Steve, I, I just I wonder about uh, your take on this. One of the things that has been true, and people will point his partisans, will say, oh, well, wait a minute, we've had 80 some airstrikes against uh, these various proxy targets and uh, the Houthis and so on. And yet, in I think every case, we have telegraphed we were going to mount an attack, in some cases, days before they took place. We've notified when aircraft were in the air. We've ensured in other words, that there wouldn't be anybody harmed by the attacks, maybe some buildings blown up. But uh, what are your thoughts about this? Well, even totally soft until the last week when we, we killed the two uh, Iranian, uh, Iranian proxy leaders in a car in Baghdad. We, I assume it was a Hellfire missile, but it was a perfect strike and, and, and they were both killed. And that was a good thing. I think because, as the Pentagon said, these are the guys that organized the attack on Tower 22. So they paid for what they did. Um, so that was good. I mean, uh, it has alarmed the Iraqi government's up, you know, completely in a state of uh, confusion at the moment. And some of them are saying they want the U.S. to get out and all that sort of thing. But I think it was a good it was a good move. And I congratulate DOD and Pentagon uh, and the military, especially who carried this out, CENTCOM should get five stars for this. Hmm. Good job. So, Steve, um, uh, with respect to the Iraqis now, obviously, with uh, the active encouragement, shall we say, of Iran and the uh, presence of these proxies, which, as you say, they're uh, they're allowing, if not actually enabling, hmm. um, what are the prospects that we will, in fact, find um, our welcome in Iraq ended. And either way, honestly, uh, people are asking the question, should our forces Why are we there anyway? be there and, and in Syria for that matter? Well, we are, we are the guarantee to the current Iraqi government that the Iranians just won't take over the whole place. That's the only reason we're really there, is, is, to, is to help the Iraqi government survive. A tripwire, in effect? Yeah. I mean, yeah, tripwire is a good terminology. A I call it a guarantee. You know, as long as the Americans are there, the Iranians can't move their forces into Iraq, which they would do. Their own forces apart oh, yeah, from the I Iranian Revolutionary think, Guard. Remember, these elements. are two countries that fought it out before. So, yeah, a very bloody uh, war. That's 10 years. So I think that what the, the, the Iranians would like to do is take over Iraq entirely. 
uh, as they've pretty much taken over Lebanon entirely and pretty well control what's going on in Syria too. It's part of that whole crescent idea that that's their power play. And then they want to go to war with Israel. That's that's their objective. Some would argue they are at war with Israel. It's being well, of course they are, but not in the process. way they want to. I mean, yeah. what they want to do is a big war. Right. You know, and, and that's an interesting question, Steve. Do you think it is uh, their desire to have a big war? Uh, and, and if so, um, where do you think they are with their nuclear weapons? Well, they say they do. Deterrent? They say so. I mean, they're, they're clear about they want to destroy Israel. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt about that. (laughs) It's not up for discussion. But Uh, whether they want to be open to direct Israeli attack is the question. Well, it's a little bit crazy because the Israelis also have nuclear weapons, although they don't admit it. Um, And the the Iranians, according to the latest report, could have five or six nuclear weapons in a very short time, like a few weeks. So I think they're, my own personal opinion is the Iranians are building up an arsenal of nuclear weapons. And when they feel that they have it sufficiently with a decent delivery systems, then they'll say so. In the meantime, they're, they're under the table. But uh, look, there there is a nuclear threat. Uh, and there's a conventional threat. There's thousands and thousands of missiles uh, uh, assembled in by Hezbollah in, in in, in Syria and Lebanon. Right. And, and I'm told, Steve, just going back to topic A, that um, the Russians have actually said they would come to Hezbollah's defense in the event uh, the Israelis go after them. We uh, want to believe that. Frank, that's fine. I, I think the Russians are talking through their hats. Um, how are they going to help them? What are they going to do? Send a brigade to, to, to Yemen? I mean, come Un- on. Unclear, but uh, it's Very interesting unclear. that yeah, they're, uh, that they're talking it's, about it's it, not. I guess, in the hopes of deterring the yeah. Israelis. Yeah, I mean, but it's, it, practically speaking, it's it's not realistic, and it's just nonsense. Let's put it that way. We're, we have to come back to you on the whole prospect of escalation here. God bless you, my friend. Thanks for your time today. Have Frank. a great weekend, and we'll talk okay. next week. Bye-bye. We'll be right back. No, we will not be right back. Let me just say thank you to the rest of you for joining us as well. Come back to us next time. Until then, go forth and multiply.